Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. Hey, everyone. I'm going to share with you Psalm 72, verses 12 through 14. He will rescue the poor when they cry to him. He will help the oppressed who have no one to defend them. He feels pity for the weak and the needy, and he will save them from oppression and from violence, for their lives are precious to him. Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast. I am your host, Sandra Flack. So thankful to be with you today. Um, I'm excited to bring you another episode with the amazing Dr. Jared Brown. If you're if you're new to this podcast, uh, we did a whole series with Dr. Jared Brown over 20 episodes. We called them bonus episodes. So if you haven't listened to those, Feel free to, to, to scroll back through our library of episodes and find them. They're labeled bonus episodes. We covered such important topics for adoptive and foster parents. We talked about attachment. We talked about executive dysfunction. We talked about uh, adverse childhood experiences and all the different types of trauma and how uh, trauma affects children. We talked about things like... Um, goodness, the effect of screen time on our kiddos. We talked about uh, sugary beverages on on the effect that that has on our kiddos. So, so many, many relevant topics, so educational. um, And he takes us really deep in the weeds and and shares with us about those subjects and then how we as parents can, can support our children and better help them. So I'm so excited because we have him back with us today. Um, But before we get to our conversation, I'd love for you to check out this important information. Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast would like to invite you to join their Hope for the FASD Journey, a virtual support community for parents and caregivers raising individuals with an FASD, diagnosed or not. This faith-based community includes an online bi-monthly support group, a monthly VIP conversation, and a private Facebook group which includes a video devotional from Natalie and Sandra every Saturday. To register, visit justicefororphansny.org forward slash training forward slash F-A-S-D. And in addition to our amazing parent support group, I've also been offering some coaching sessions. So if you suspect that your child um, has been prenatally exposed to alcohol, maybe they don't have a diagnosis, maybe you're not 100% sure some of the things that we talk about on this show, the primary symptoms, I devoted a whole series of episodes on the primary symptoms of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Um, If you would like to learn more, go a little bit deeper, um, do a one-on-one, some one-on-one coaching with me. I'm now offering that in addition to 
We also have uh, workshops where I use the FACETS neurobehavioral model uh, to take a brain-based approach to looking at um, and helping to support uh, our kiddos who were prenatally exposed. And even, even if they weren't prenatally expo exposed, the neurobehavioral model really helps us when parenting kids who even um, have experienced trauma, which all of our kids, if you are a foster or adoptive or kinship caregiver, um, the children that you are parenting have experienced some form of trauma, right? Um, if they were prenatally exposed to drugs, but you don't know about alcohol, most likely alcohol has come into play. Um, or maybe they have some other type of neuro uh, behavioral condition that they were diagnosed with, whether or not it's FASD. The, the neurobehavioral model that I teach um, is relevant and works with all neurobehavioral conditions. So whether you want some coaching or one of our workshops, um, you can check it all out on our website at justicefororphansny.org. Um, also, before we get to our guest, please feel free to subscribe to this podcast or follow it depending on what um, platform that you're listening or watching on. If you just listened to this podcast, you may not know that we have now been releasing all of our episodes, um, the video version. So you can find that on Spotify. You can also find it on our YouTube channel. So um, subscribe, follow, check it out. We greatly appreciate that. Now to our amazing guest, uh, and I have to read his bio because it is so extensive. Um, Dr. Jared Brown, PhD, uh, is an assistant professor for Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, Jared has also been employed with Pathways Counseling Center in St. Paul for the past 18 years. Pathways provides programs and services benefiting individuals impacted by mental illness and addictions. Jared is also founder and CEO of the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies uh, and editor-in-chief of Forensic Scholars Today. He has completed four master's degrees uh, and holds graduate certificates in autism spectrum disorder, other health disabilities, and traumatic brain injuries. Jared is an FASD trainer, an autism specialist, and a mental health integrative medicine provider. That means he knows all the things about all of the things, and I am thrilled to have him back on the show. So please welcome Dr. Jared Brown. Hey, Jared, welcome back. Hey, Sandra, it's been a while, but thank you for having me back. Oh, we always love to have you on the show. Um, I think we've done over 20 episodes uh, together in the past. I've, I've shared that at the beginning, so our listeners who may be new can go back and find those, those episodes. But yeah, it's been a few months, so update us. What's going on in your world? I know the last time we chatted, you and your wife were beginning to do foster care, so update us on uh, yeah, how you've been, what's going on. Yeah, we're still doing foster care, and she's eight months now, and that's going remarkably well. And just been life changing because I've always come at this from the angle as a professor and a trainer and a researcher, but now actually living it, I have a, a newfound appreciation. I could talk a good game before, but actually living it, that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. So I commend all of you who do this work. It, it's hard, but it's it's a true blessing. Definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for what you do yes. from both the, the professional side of things, but also now with that lived experience and uh, caring for that little one. So thank you for Absolutely. what you're doing. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So gosh, so like I said, more than 20 um, topics we've covered previously. 
Um, and I know today we're going to be diving into a new topic for us, um, the impact of poverty on the health and well-being of children. Um, and this is this is an area that I'm, I'm really interested to chat with you about because with our nonprofit, JFO, not only are we serving adoptive and foster parents who are most likely raising children that have come out of poverty, but also with our work with Care Portal, we equip churches to step into this space where um, they're stepping into where uh, the space where families are in poverty, most likely. Um, and we want to make sure that we have a good understanding of the impact poverty has on the, the children, the child, the family, uh, and how we can really come alongside and support and understand it and step into this space and help without hurting. So would you start off by just defining um, childhood poverty for us? What does that look like? Yeah, if we could even back it up a step further, it's a type of trauma. So yeah. at varying levels, I mean, you, you could have a, a child in poverty, but with two stable parents who love that child deeply, but they're living in poverty. What I'm going to be covering today is more like the really tough stuff that really looking at it through a trauma lens. So if we, again, put our trauma hat on, you have acute trauma. That's kind of like a one-time trauma, car accident, mm -hmm. natural disaster. Don't want to minimize that. Very important. But what I'm talking about today would probably more fall under the umbrella of like chronic and complex trauma, where it's more widespread, it's more cumulative. And if a child is living in a poverty kind of situation, or on the verge of homelessness, or in full-blown homelessness, and that goes on for a long period of time, the research is so clear on this, that child is likely exposed, not only to the trauma of just being in that situation, but you're more likely to be exposed to pollution, violence, mm. poor dental health, more broken bones, just seeing horrific things. And what about if you're living in a climate where it's really hot, heat exposure, you don't think about that, or in a cold climate, frostbite, all of these things can wreak havoc on that child's brain and body. So I'm really going to come at it from the angle of kind of a complex developmental trauma. Again, somebody could be in poverty and it'd be very short term. I'm not really talking about that today. It's more the extended kinds of trauma. What happens too, let's think about this. There's actually a lot of research studies on this. I gave a talk recently on prenatal traumas to a different group. Mm -hmm. What happens if mom is pregnant and living in poverty or homelessness? There's actually a whole line of literature that talks about prenatal poverty exposure. And as you can probably imagine, it's it can lead to poor birth outcomes. It can lead to all kinds of issues. What, so again, whatever happens to mom during pregnancy happens to that developing baby in utero. So we have to not only consider what happened after birth, but prior to birth as well. So Sandra, I'll kick it back to you for a minute and see if you have any thoughts. Yeah, my mind is 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 racing with all kinds of thoughts because I know, um, you know, my children that we adopted internationally had been in an orphanage, and our older two had been with their biological parents, and then they were found um, really in a place where they were um, the birth parents were nowhere around. They were in a shack with no heat. There was no food. Um, so poverty, right? That they, they, they were in that 
space and then being placed in an orphanage while they were getting fed, that's still, to me, that still is a poverty environment because they're not getting fed like they should be fed. Um, you know, it, it's it's a it's a, a, a poor, dreary place, right? And then our younger children who went from being born in a hospital to an orphanage again, um, just a lot of a lot of lack, right, in their environment. So when they came to us, our kids all had dental problems because most likely mom was living in poverty, no prenatal care, right? The children had you know very poor teeth and other other chronic issues. Um, so it can sort of um, I want to say escalate, right? It, it just sort of builds if they're in poverty for a long time, like you're saying, more of a chronic um, situation, uh, complex, where it's an ongoing um, environment of trauma and all of the different things that can come from there. The, the, the uh, I think of domestic violence and and children being abandoned or neglected. And, yeah. and uh, just, I can imagine it, all of these things build and really, really lead to poor outcomes for children. Without a doubt. We, so when we think of the poor outcomes, maybe let's just start with the brain. You, you will find numerous studies that talk about childhood poverty can have a profound negative impact on neurodevelopment. So when you think of neural brain development, that then trickles down. You could have failure to thrive issues where that child then doesn't meet appropriate like developmental milestones. It's been linked with profound executive function impairments. You and I have talked about executive function multiple times throughout that yeah. series we did. Most kids that have had extensive traumas in utero or in childhood are probably going to have some level of executive function impairments, which executive function is the CEO of the brain, the boss of the brain. It guides day-to-day -day behavior. You may not notice it as a, like a young child if you're a parent, but you will absolutely notice it when that child gets into a K through 12 setting. Attention issues, memory problems, disorganization, time management, language deficits have been linked with more childhood poverty. So it's not uncommon. You might see language delays or just underdeveloped language skills in general. And unfortunately too, childhood poverty in some cases has been linked to actually lowering IQ scores of children as well. So it can not only impact language executive function, but their overall IQ levels as well. So they could really be dealing with functioning several years younger than their actual chronological age. So when that child gets into school, they may be a few years behind the other classmates who are the same age. And when that happens, in some cases, unfortunately, these children may be labeled with something they don't have. They might be more prone to being bullied and teased. They could be thrown into special education. When in fact, if you look through a trauma lens, you might be able to set up different supports and services to help offset some of those things they're dealing with that put them maybe a year or two behind other kids in some situations. Wow, so many things to think about. And, um, you know, when I often think of when we're serving families through our care portal uh, platform and our and we're equipping churches to go in and, and make and deliver items to a family, we, we deliver tangible things, beds, uh, bedding, clothing, food, sometimes it's a table and chairs so a family can have a meal together. Um, 
stabilizing a family in that way by providing some things to help stabilize that environment is is really key because I think yeah. I always think about if a child is sleeping on a floor or here we're in upstate New York. I know you're you're in a in a state in Minnesota where it's cold in the wintertime, right? Yeah. If kids mm-hmm. are sleeping on floors or they're sleeping on air mattresses, which are not very warm, um, you know, they're not getting a good night's sleep. And we I know you and I have talked about the yeah. impact of, of of poor sleep um with kiddos. So talk a little bit about that because these these are things that we don't often think about because if a child is not sleeping well and then they're not able to get up for school in the morning or they're not able to focus at school, it really spirals. So talk about that a little bit. It's just pouring gasoline on the fire. If you're sleep deprived, just everything's worse. For a kid who maybe already has underdeveloped self-regulation skills, and when they feel a lot of unrest in their body, they'll become more irritable, more dysregulated mood swings. In some cases, it could be a triggering event for full-blown rage, depending on that child's background. For some kids too, and there's research to support this, if you're working with kids with disruptive behavioral disorders, has anyone before diagnosing them with like conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, even ADHD, ruled out the fact, could there be a lot of trauma at play and sleep issues? And in some cases, sleep disorder breathing, it talks about ruling that out as well. Because if you can calm the brain down and you get better sleep, and maybe you eat better, so you calm the gut down, all of that can make those behavioral problems go down and down and down. It may not get rid of them completely, but in all actuality, it should bring them down significantly. So sleep's a huge thing. And when we're on this too, if you think of like childhood poverty or any any kind of poverty, adult poverty, it is absolutely linked with higher health disparities. And you mentioned the dental health a little bit. Absolutely. People living in poverty are more likely to have illnesses. Can you imagine being in a homeless shelter during the heart of COVID? during the lockdowns. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are studies on that. Th- that is that is pretty scary. And a lot of people got COVID and some passed away, unfortunately. People, high levels of poverty, more likely to have injuries from slips and falls, from getting attacked, all kinds of things. It's been linked with nutritional deficiencies. I don't remember when I gave this talk, it was probably a couple of years ago now, It was for a different group. I gave a professional training on homelessness and sleep issues. And I was shocked to learn when preparing for that, how many studies have actually been published on the high rates of sleep disorders within homeless shelters. And you mentioned some of them, uncomfortable mattresses, laying on the floor. A lot of times, at least in my experience, when I've worked with a lot of clients in homeless shelters in the Twin Cities area in Minnesota, A lot of these facilities are in the heart of the city. So they also talk about noise pollution exposure, Mm -hmm. loud trucks coming by, the garbage trucks that wakes people up, doors slamming. It's hot and humid in some of those places, really cold in some cases, the lights are on. All of those things have been linked with more sleep issues and sleep just makes everything worse. And I'm actually, I know you and I have talked about nutrition a lot. I'm actually in nutrition school now, so I feel more comfortable sharing more and more about nutrition. I'm not giving nutritional advice, but you will find a lot of studies too. And I'm not knocking homeless shelters, but the studies on the national level really point to the fact 
that the food that is served in homeless shelters is not good for a human being. It's lots of leftover pastries, desserts, pizzas, foods that are loaded with sodium, foods high carbs, foods that lack fiber and calcium and vitamin E and A. And this is all stuff, not my opinion. You will find numerous studies that talk about nutrition in, in some of these facilities. And I don't think a lot of these facilities realize that. But in some cases too, the, the nutrition that people eat is making everything worse. It's inflaming their body. It's impacting their gut health. And if your gut's off, your brain's off. And if your brain's off, everything else is impacted. So it's sleep, it's nutrition, it's the trauma, it's the food insecurity. I think we're doing a food insecurity talk coming up if I remember right as well. So I can yeah, go deeper yeah. about that. But. And I just saw on the news recently, there was a story about, you know, talking about food um, in lower income communities. Uh, people are doing more of their grocery shopping at dollar stores. Yes. And what kind of groceries are available at dollar stores? It's not your know. fresh fruits and vegetable, mm -hmm. it, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables, easy for me to say. Um, you know, it's it's packaged and, and boxed and canned things. Um, and a lot of times it's those, the dollar store type stores that are in a community and, and other grocery stores that could off, offer healthier food selections move out because of the, the, the lack of clientele because everybody's taking advantage of the cheaper prices, the lower prices at the dollar store. So then a family has limited options if they're not able to get farther away to a grocery store that has healthier food and they're just shopping at dollar stores. Yeah. Can you can you talk a little bit about really it's quality of nutrition, even if you have a family not in a homeless shelter, but a family just scraping by um, in, in an impoverished community, um, the availability of healthy food, nutritious food is lacking. Um, share a little bit more about the impact, you know, what that negative impact is on kiddos when they don't have healthy, nutritious food. When, when what you're saying, we're talking about food swamps and food deserts. And we'll talk about yes. that in the food insecurity training. I've worked with a lot of adult clients who are dealing with poverty, some homelessness. And a lot of, at least in my experience, a lot of these clients when you think of poverty and homelessness, you always think they're not going to have food. Most of the clients I've worked with who are in this status have access to plenty of food, but it's it's gas station food, it's fast food, right. Right. It, it's drop-in center food, it's food shelf food, and nothing against food shelves. I love food shelves, but in my experience, the food shelves, a lot of them, at least in our area, not all, what do you get? Lots of bread, lots of canned stuff things that are outdated in some cases and all of those things in most cases are loaded with what preservatives emulsifiers food colorings additives lots of sugar lots of salt things that taste good but it's not good for you so when we're eating food like that they're very energy dense as you can imagine you get more calories and a lot of people maybe living in these homeless situations or poverty sedentary behaviors as a whole another can of worms to think about so you're not moving a lot you're eating all of this high energy dense food what happens insulin levels go up glucose levels increase risk of diabetes increased risk of obesity the way that eating does what it does for our body it's like chronic low-grade inflammation so it's just kind of our bodies are on fire 
And that's been linked with more depression, anxiety, and joint problems, and migraine headaches, and diseases, man-made diseases. The Western diet comes to mind, ultra-processed foods. I'll get way deep in the weeds with, with that and the food insecurity one. But just know, if a child or an adult is not eating healthy foods, I mean, you're going to probably have more metabolic dysfunction. Maybe it's cholesterol issues, it's hypertension, it's blood sugar dysregulation that could trickle into prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. And look at that literature. I mean, that's lots of people with untreated diabetes, more likely to have lots of mental health problems as well. And the gut's off all the time. If you're eating this way, your gut's off. And again, that gut brain health access, huge bi-directional communication between what's going on in the brain and the gut. And if you want to improve brain health, improve gut health. If you want to improve gut health, eat better exercise, get better sleep, get stable housing, be around caring, loving people. Easier said than done, obviously, mm -hmm. but a lot of it's just common sense too. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to, to dive deeper into that when we cover food insecurity. Um, that's another whole episode, but it definitely is related to this one. Um, and I would imagine by violence, domestic violence has to be, I would imagine more prevalent in, in, a, in, in a, community with poverty, as well as just community violence, gunshots being heard, that kind of thing. So can you weigh in on, on yeah. that? I'm giving a talk for another group. It's like a week or two on food insecurity in the criminal justice system. And in there, I have a slide on one study has found if you want to tackle the gun violence issue in the United States, start addressing food insecurity issues. It talks wow. about, again, other a lot of other variables, but that's a targeted area. If we look at this through a child abuse lens, poverty is a risk factor at the family level for child maltreatment. It's not the only factor. And not everybody in poverty situations is going to abuse their children, but it is a risk factor that obviously puts more strain worry, fear, and stress on that family. Maybe it's lack of transportation, lack of health care. Maybe the child is, they just can't get the child to go to school or things like that. Or there's that digital divide where that child needs access to a computer or the internet and they don't have that. I mean, all that stress can compound and other factors that are more common among people who unfortunately engage in child maltreatment, substance misuse, untreated severe mental health issues, financial instability, housing instability, all of food insecurity is talked about in this literature, chronic uh, unemployment. These are all things that could drive up child maltreatment. At the community violence level, so it's not just what's going on within that immediate family system, but if people are wandering the streets, they don't have a place to live, they're in and out of shelters, we absolutely need to take into account community violence exposure, neighborhood dysfunction. It depends on the neighborhood, a lot of factors, but if you're walking the streets late at night and you're, you're in a neighborhood that may have some more challenges, you might be more likely to get robbed or mugged or assaulted, or what about gang violence? All of these things. You look at the research too, it's crazy how, how scary this is. How many studies have been published on traumatic brain injuries among people who are long-term chronic homelessness. A high percentage of people who are homeless 
have brain injuries in their history. It's not the only factor. The brain injury could be a factor that brought them into homelessness or being in homelessness caused them to have a brain injury because they got hit in the head or got beat up or maybe they're intoxicated and slipped and fell and hit their head on the side of the curb. I've consulted on a couple cases where these folks had FASD as adults and they were dealing with poverty and homelessness issues and they had mobility issues and they would ride their bicycle around town and they actually wiped out on their bicycle a few times and hit their head on the ground. I mean, there's so many variables and things to think about, but TBI, more common. Kids that have had extensive abuse histories, more common to have brain injuries. Domestic violence perpetrators are more likely to have head trauma as well as survivors of domestic violence. And then what about foster care? Mm -hmm. If think of, think about this, and by no means am I saying this for everyone in foster care by any stretch, but there is a small subset of people that enter the foster care arena. And it really depends on the placement. Maybe they were moving from placement to placement. And when they age out of the foster care system and they don't have proper supports and maybe they don't have a good solid relationship with their foster care parents, those kids are more likely, the research says, to become homeless in some cases, to deal with more financial problems, more work-related issues, more food insecurity, more mental health problems. And it's not as simple as saying the child enters foster care. It really has a lot to do with what happened before, what kind of placement it was, what kind of supports did they have in place. But that's another variable that is talked about too in, in the, the poverty literature. So fascinating because I'm thinking also about the impact it has on a child's education, right? Because all of the things that we were just talking about from, um, you know, the executive function, uh, dysfunction, really, the lower IQ, sleep problems, uh, poor nutrition problems, domestic violence, abuse, homelessness, all of those things will will trickle down and affect a child's education and how they can perform in school. Can you share a little bit about that? Absolutely. I mean, again, you've, you've hit it out of the ballpark, but if the child is dealing with executive function, that's going to be a huge barrier. Maybe the child grew up in poverty and they had very limited access to books and print materials and the parents were so checked out and dealing with their own issues, that child never was read to. That's a whole nother factor to take into account. They had less cognitively stimulating environments therein. So maybe they were always glued to the gadgets. So kids that are just glued to the screen all day long, that can impact learning as well. That could be a, an issue with sensory issues as well. The very nature of not getting nutritious foods prenatally and in early development has absolutely been linked with more academic performance issues as well. And some of these kids too, I mean, they may present in the classroom, again, as having like full-blown ADHD, they can't sit still. Maybe they're just afraid. Maybe they have social anxiety. Maybe they just haven't learned appropriate social skills. Take a step back when you see those behavioral patterns. Don't always jump to the conclusion they have this diagnosis. Maybe they do, but peel back the layers. In some cases, there's trauma, there's head injuries, there's nutritional deficiencies. And to be able to tackle this, 
it really takes a holistic, integrative, multidisciplinary approach, not just with one professional, but usually quite a few different professionals. Because the last thing we want to do is start labeling these kids. You get all these labels, the child's going to start thinking they're not that bright. They get a little bit older, they're probably going to have more shame. They're probably not going to try hard as they get older in the teenage years. Are they going to start associating with folks that may not have their best intentions in mind? And do they drop out early? Do they start experimenting with drugs and alcohol? All these things. These are all things I've consulted on. And then they end up in the criminal justice system. One thing, another thing I didn't really think to talk about, but I just remembered what happens if the family, the child, they're living in a really dilapidated living environment. Mm-hmm. And they're exposed to environmental toxins, pollution, or lead or mercury exposure. They, In this research literature, it does talk about poverty and homelessness. You might be more likely to be exposed to these environmental toxins as well, which can wreak havoc on the brain and body. And noise pollution. I brought that up briefly, but that's a fascinating area too. If you're exposed to noise pollution, basically just noise from all kinds of outside sources, it can trigger stress. You're not going to sleep as well. It can amplify mental health problems. And living in a crowded housing environment as well can be very traumatic for some. And there's one study I know of, they they found that people who lived in a really chaotic, crowded housing environment were more likely to have gut dysbiosis, so problems with the digestive health system as well. Wow. It's making me think of uh, through our care portal uh, program with our nonprofit, I was able to go on um, a delivery where we delivered um, beds and some other items to a family. Um, And it was uh, it's it's always just heartbreaking, heart heart wrenching. So we went into um, an inner city community. We delivered beds for the children and for the mom. Uh, and, and we, we went in, we went in and mom, and at the time I didn't understand the impact of trauma on this mom, but now I understand if I can, I'm pretty sure there, it was a domestic violence situation that she had been in. And then she's setting up, uh, you know, moved to a new location with her kids because the whole time mom was on a cell phone and barely engaging with us as we're bringing in the beds and bringing in all of the things, which if you didn't understand the impact of trauma, you might think, gosh, this mom is not very grateful here. We're showing up with all of these things for her. And she wouldn't even look us in the eye and avoided us and stayed on the cell phone. But if you look at it through the lens and understand that she'd experienced domestic violence, we were technically strangers coming in, delivering this stuff. We had a group. So there was men and there was women. She was uncomfortable and was on that phone really for security because she didn't really want to interact with us, not because she wasn't grateful, but because of that trauma. Um, but at the same time, going into that home, bringing, bringing those things, it was dirty. You know, there were cockroaches. There were, um, uh, there were, dirty dishes everywhere. The stove didn't look like it worked. So she was using, she was just cooking canned goods right over a little burner is what she was doing. Um, and it, it was, there was, the kids were playing at, it was in the city. So you're on a, on a street in a city um, garbage all along the street. And that's where the children were playing. So what, you know, with what I just described, which is what we literally saw, 
Um, and we were there really providing these items were to help stabilize this family so these children wouldn't go into foster care. And we found a lot of times the bar is pretty low when yeah. it isn't when abuse wasn't happening with the children, when the children were overall safe, um, you know, we can stabilize the situation. It's better for them to stay with 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 a parent or with mom. But what what impact on kids is that kind of environment? Well, caregiver modeling, obviously. And I don't know this woman, but during times right. of stress, does she become dysregulated? So you're modeling that behavior, maybe. The very nature of having maternal trauma, maternal adverse childhood experiences has been linked with less effective parenting practices and less attunement, less empathy, even higher levels of parental burnout. And in some cases, it could be higher levels of parental alexithymia, where that parent has a really hard time naming processing, labeling their own emotions, which then all those emotions go into the body and can come out sideways. Depending on this situation or any situation, are the children exposed to secondhand smoke? Many cases I've consulted on the parent smokes. Are they exposed to other family members or people in the community that come into that home? That could be dangerous. That's something to mm -hmm. think about. How much supervision do those children get? Are they allowed to go out whenever they want? Can they do whatever they want? Do they have access to whatever they want to watch on the screen? These are all examples of cases I've consulted on. For some of these families, they may have lower levels of health literacy or nutritional literacy. So they don't know how to read labels in some cases or when to bring your child to the doctor, have routine checkups, or just putting appropriate boundaries and fences in place. And if the person has had an extensive history of domestic violence, you also really need to take into account a very high percentage of domestic violence survivors have also had head trauma. So -hmm. there could be a head trauma, and maybe that trickles down into executive functioning, which then can impact parenting. So those are just a few things that pop in my mind with with what you shared with me, that could be some layers. But again, we approach, when you're working with trauma survivors, I wonder too, she was on the phone distracting mm -hmm. herself, but was she also on the phone because she had so much shame and guilt that maybe mm -hmm. I can't provide for my family. I have to have all these other people come in and provide. So we have to also consider not only the safety component and the trust, but is there shame? And all of that reminds me of just utilizing a trauma-informed, positive, encouraging, strengths-based approach, maybe some motivational interviewing, some attachment-based approaches, and just keep showing up. And for some of these families, they may have had a tough go at it their whole life. So showing up one or two times, you may see that reaction, but you may need to show up over and over and over again for years for some people. I, I have some friends that work with adult clients that have had a long history of homelessness. And some of them, these professionals say it, I mean, it takes me two years before this client really starts opening up. So this stuff is not easy. It takes time. Just showing up's half the battle. And the more you can be predictable and the more you can be reliable, that family will know that you're in it for the long haul. Hang in there the long haul. This is not a short game. It's a long game, I think, with, with working with families and kids that have a lot of these complex backgrounds. 
Yeah. And I know that's, that's the intention of we've, we've got nearly 70 churches in our area that are going in and serving and meeting needs. And many of them, you know, well, I think all of them sign up to do it because they want to make that difference and they want to make a connection and they want to be an ongoing support. Sometimes a family is open to that. Sometimes they're not, um, but we let them know they're not alone. We see you, we're here for you. um, We care about you. Um, And and sometimes it does, it does, it does become more than that. And that that's wonderful when it does. Um, But I also think about our kiddos who, so many of our listeners, as you know, are foster parents, adoptive parents, and most likely the kids that we're caring for have come from a poverty background. So all of these things that you've described, or you know, meant much of what you've described, they may have experienced, right? Yeah. So, what would you say? How could what advice would you give us parents and caregivers on how we can really um, help our children? Uh, who've come from these backgrounds and help support them and accommodate them. Yeah, I think look at some of the other podcasts we've done. We've talked a lot about supporting early childhood development, but safety, predictability, utilize warm parenting approaches, parental sensitivity, mindfulness parenting approaches, trauma-informed parenting. All of those things are going to be really, really helpful. That's a good foundation. Take it to the next level. I'm not giving medical advice here, but let's see, think what the research says. Rule out sleep issues. If you're noticing unusual sleep patterns, maybe talk to the healthcare provider and have that child screen for a sleep disorder. Could there be uh, could there be some sleep disorder breathing because of unfortunately getting punched in the nose or a broken nose? I mean, you never know. Broken noses broken face bones. I mean, those are things that do happen in some child abuse cases. Nutritional deficiencies come to mind. If appropriate, work with your healthcare provider and maybe find out, are there any deficiencies, mineral deficiencies, vitamin deficiencies? Look at some of the literature on low iron and how that may play a role in ADHD. There may be a lot of things that you will never be able to visually see that could be going on biochemically. Rule out gut issues. If that child is complaining a lot of gut issues or constipation, diarrhea, just lots of gastrointestinal things, look into that because that's an indication not only the gut's off, but it's probably impacting the brain as well. A couple other things come to mind. If we look at this research, language deficits, Mm -hmm. are there language problems? If you can identify language problems early on and target that for intervention, that's going to help that child be way more successful as they get into school. Sensory issues are very common among kids with extensive trauma. Rule out sensory processing issues because if that child's dealing with an undiagnosed sensory processing issue, bright lights, cologne, perfume, even certain fabric softeners could be impacting this. So let's say the child has some deficit in that area and you use this wonderful smelling fabric softener and it's on their sheets or or their pillow, we don't connect those dots. That could be a triggering event for very bad sleep. Candles, I mean, incense, all those things could be triggering. We just don't know. Yeah. One thing I I would answer that is our youngest too, because they went from being born in a hospital to an orphanage, they didn't have... um, 
they didn't have a sensory rich environment. They had very little toys to play with. Um, it was just a very dull and dreary atmosphere. Um, we adopted one of them when they were three years old, one when they were five years old. They didn't have what we would have kids in the United States would typically have with, with, with preschool, pre-K, all of that educational uh, influence. They didn't have any of that. Um, they hadn't ridden in vehicles before. They hadn't been in a car. They hadn't been outside of the orphanage. So I know, especially our youngest, he was sensory seeking. He wanted to experience everything out there, but then he would get overwhelmed because it was too much, right? So it can kind of be one end of the spectrum with that or the other, right? They could be easily overwhelmed with the sights and the smells and and all of that, but it also could, they could be sensory seeking, which one of our kiddos was, and he really needed deep pressure touch, the the weighted vest or the weighted blanket and lifting heavy things. um, Those kinds of things helped him to regulate. Art therapy comes to mind as well play therapy animal assisted therapy i'm a huge fan of those kind of interventions for for some kids depending on their age maybe they'll do well with biofeedback neurofeedback there's so many modalities to use and it's usually not just one when if you are raising a child who came out of an environment of what we've been talking about today there's probably a multitude of different variables you'd want to consider. The alexithymia is probably going to be common in at least half of these kids that have had these trauma histories. So problems naming, labeling emotions. So working on teaching that child how to start naming emotions early on. It is not uncommon for these kids too to have theory of mind deficits. So problems with perspective taking. So really focusing on that and enhancing empathy and sympathy awareness and those kind of things can be very, very helpful. And for some of these kids too, another thing that I forgot to mention, if they're dealing with some of the cognitive brain-based impairments, they could in some cases be dealing with processing speed weaknesses. So you as a parent, if you talk fast, if you use multi-step instructions to somebody that has processing speed weaknesses, all that information goes into their ears and it gets jumbled up a traffic jam in the brain they're they're going to shut down or they're going to become really hyper aroused and get all angry slow down allow the brain to process and look around at your surroundings too because clutter bright lights lots of books lots of commotion going on can overwhelm these kids so a lot of things to think about. Every kid is wired mm-hmm. differently. So you may have a child with this extensive background, not have any of these things going on. But in my experience, they're going to have at least some of them going on, I would assume. Yeah, well, it's all great information and great advice as usual, Dr. Jared Brown. Um, I know I'm looking forward to our next conversation. We are going to be talking about the impact of food insecurity. So we will dive deeper into that. We touched on it a little bit today. Um, And I'm just so grateful that you were with us. Any last thoughts as we wrap up? Well, when we think about the factors that influence child development, either positively or negatively, look at the prenatal world, what was going on with mom during pregnancy, Nutrition habits, stress, was she using drugs, alcohol? Was she having good prenatal care? Temperamental factors need to be taken into account as well. 
think of your child's temperament. Are they introvert, extrovert? Are they really sensitive? Are they highly emotional? Be aware of that. Just sometimes we can't change their temperament, but there's things we can do to maybe nudge it along. Be aware of nutritional factors after birth, sleep factors, gut factors. Stay in contact with your healthcare provider. Talk to other providers. Talk to other foster care providers. Form a network. Bounce ideas off one another. Talk about these things because these are hard things and you don't have to do it in isolation as well. And everything I'm saying as well, you'll find numerous things online. There's all kinds of studies written on all of these topics. So Wonderful. I know it's just to keep in mind that it's our kids come to us and they've had a history before they've come to us. And we have to look at that and look at the environment they came from and what was going on in their world when they were, when they were in the womb and in their childhood. And then we need to have our eyes opened and be able to address those things and understand the impact that all of those things have on the brain, on the body, on our kiddos so that we can better support them. So I'm just so grateful. Thank you so much again, Jared, for just your expertise coming to us and educating us and equipping us for this parenting journey. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me back. Thank you. Another great conversation with Dr. Jared Brown. I always learn so much from him. And if you saw me looking down a lot, I was furiously taking notes uh, because he just has such a a wealth of information to offer that uh, I'm I'm always trying to write it all down so that I don't forget. Um, But just another great conversation. And I thank you for being with us today and listening to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast. Um, I hope you are encouraged and feel better equipped after our conversation with Dr. Jared Brown. Um, Looking forward to uh, recording another episode with him soon on food insecurity and the impact that that has on kiddos. Um, And if you haven't checked out those episodes, I have over 20 episodes um, with Dr. Jared Brown that we we called them bonus episodes. We used to release them every Friday. Um, Go back through scroll back through all of our episodes and you'll find them. We talked about such incredible topics um, and he just is a wealth of information, like I said. Um, So feel free to go through those. They're not, we don't have the video for those. They're only the audio. Uh, We weren't doing video back then, Um, but you can scroll through, you can listen to those episodes and really learn a whole lot more um, from Dr. Jared Brown. In addition to inspiring you, we'd love to equip you here at Uh, the Adoption and Foster Care Journey and through our nonprofit, Justice for Orphans. Um, And one of the ways we do that is providing not only the support group, not only this podcast, um, also workshops for uh, parents caring for kiddos with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, whether they're diagnosed or not. If you want to learn more about FASD, we have workshops. Um, I also have coaching for parents. Check out our website so that you can access all of our resources. That is justicefororphansny.org. And make sure that you subscribe or follow this podcast so that more adoptive and foster families can benefit from finding it and listening. Um, And again, follow us on social media as well. Justice for Orphans is on both uh, Facebook and Instagram. I myself, Sandra Flack, are on both I am on both platforms as well. Um, And I'm grateful that you spent your valuable time with us today. Grateful to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. 
please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.